This is Josh Barrow, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. It is the fourth week of August, and this week Republicans held their national convention. It culminated on Thursday with President Trump delivering a 70-minute speech from the South Lawn of the White House. Trump seems to have settled on a line of attack against Biden, that he is a vehicle for radicals in his party, even if he defeated those radicals' preferred candidates in the primary. Here's Trump. If the left gains power, they will demolish the suburbs confiscate your guns, and appoint justices who will wipe away your Second Amendment and other constitutional freedoms. Biden is a Trojan horse for socialism. If Joe Biden doesn't have the strength to stand up to wild-eyed Marxists like Bernie Sanders and his fellow radicals, and there are many, there are many, many, we see them all the time, it's incredible, actually, then how is he ever going to stand up for you, he's not. Trump also pitched himself unusually as a unifier, saying, quote, we will rekindle faith in our values, new pride in our history, and a new spirit of unity that can only be realized through love of our great country, unquote. Let's bring in today's Left, Right, and Center panel. As always, I'm your center, and I'm joined by a new panel. Earlier this summer, we announced panelists will be rotating on the show, and starting this week, we have Michael Brendan Doherty, senior writer at National Review on the right, and on the left, Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. Hello. Hello. Hi, Josh. Joining us to talk about the convention is our special guest, Tim Alberta. Tim is chief political correspondent at Politico, and he wrote the book American Carnage, which is a very good recent history of the GOP. Hello, Tim. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Josh. Uh, so, Michael, I think last week watching the Democratic convention, I think their key objective was to try to raise Joe Biden's favorable ratings. What was the objective of this convention? What was the message that Republicans were trying to get out? I think the message the Republicans were trying to get out is... And this may sound very simple. We're not evil, (laughs) which is that um, a lot of the convention last week was also focused on saying Donald Trump uh, is a bad guy, is a bad person, is ill-willed. And I think what we saw this week was Trump's family was brought out to say that he's a good man. Um, the, The Republican Party emphasized figures in uh, its among its elected officials to show that, you know, even in South Carolina, we are electing uh, black uh, people to the Senate. We're electing uh, the daughter of immigrants uh, to be our governor. And we are not racist. America is fundamentally a good place and you should feel positive about your country. You should feel some, it deserves your allegiance. Um, and I, I just think that was it. It was, it was about detoxifying the Republican brand and trying to shift warm feelings towards the country um, and associate Donald Trump and the Republican Party with those. Jamel, what, what do you make of that synopsis of, of the message there? And do you see that as something that may have connected with people? I think that's a pretty good synopsis of the message. When you think about the actual political problems faced by Donald Trump in terms of trying to win re-election, that he needs to regain lost ground with seniors, with suburbanites, he needs to hold on to the margins he was able to build with Black Americans and Hispanic Americans, then a convention that is essentially one part conventional Republican message one part very focused outreach to black Americans in particular, and one part sort of a series of voices whose central message is 
Donald Trump may be, uh, you know, he may be heated at times, but he fundamentally cares about the country. I think that is basically the kind of thing you have to do if you're in Trump's position. I think the question for the campaign is that that may not, you know, that may not close the gap, that this isn't the three-point race, the four-point race that it was against Hillary Clinton. This is right now eight, seven, eight, nine-point race. Um, and so can you narrow <laughs> can you narrow a seven, eight, nine point gap um, to a three or four point gap with basically a base maintenance message? And I'm not sure that you really can. Uh, Tim, the, the remarkable thing to me here is this is not Nikki Haley's party anymore. It's not Marco Rubio's party. And Trump had a theory in 2016 that got him the nomination and then got him sufficient votes to win the presidency. And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm just not sure I get the logic of trying to put that up there and have anyone really believe that that's where the party is today, um, and then also try to try to build a coalition on the basis of that. It seems, you know, I mean, and 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 for that reason, the convention was a little bit dissonant because Trump is still Trump, um, and at the same time that you're putting out that, you know, showing off the the extent. To, to which there is uh, that the, there is ethnic diversity in the party among elected officials. It's also some of the same messaging that I think was quite divisive that got him where he is today. Yeah, I think I think that's true, and, and I do agree with you that it's dissonant. Although, on the other hand, you use the word coalition, and this is a coalition business, right? You, the, the idea in politics is to have a base and then build beyond it, and, and make sure that you are at at once mobilizing your core group of supporters while also persuading those people who are not part of your base. And so I think that what you saw over the last four days was a Republican Party uh, acutely aware of its problems with persuadable voters. And, and in particular, we're talking about white college educated suburban women who have been you know, hemorrhaging away from the Republican Party since Trump took office. And, you know, there's this old joke in Republican circles about, you know, why would a Republican presidential candidate ever go to address the NAACP? You know, you're not going to make some huge inroads with black voters. And the answer is, it's not to make some huge inroads with black voters. It's to soften your appeal to moderate white voters. And and so I think that that was a critical part of the, of the presentation and of the messaging this week when you saw the Republican Party trying to uh, project its diversity, trying to sand off Trump's very rough edges, trying to, to uh, convey this message to the masses that, look, we, we are not the sort of, you know, evil, malicious, racist entity that we are popularly portrayed to be. Uh, I think that was very much in service of focusing on this, this, this one class of persuadable voters who all of the polling public and private shows that they are not just sort of moving away from the Republican Party, but sprinting away from the Republican Party. And if they can't do something to stop that bleeding, the numbers aren't going to work come November. There's just not a viable path, particularly in some of these industrial Midwestern states with huge suburban pockets outside of Detroit and outside of Philly, outside of Milwaukee. Republicans cannot afford to lose those voters en masse the way that they have been over the last couple of years. None of us have mentioned the coronavirus yet. 
uh, and this convention was pretty light on coronavirus content. It, it seemed to me sort of trying to put that in the past. Uh, the problem being, I don't think voters are there yet. When Gallup, they monthly, they ask this question about what do you think is the most important problem facing the country? It's an open-ended question. People can say whatever they want. And, and as of August, 35% of Americans were saying something about coronavirus or disease, putting it well in the lead as the most important issue. Only, te- only 12% talking about the economy, 10% race relations, 4% crime or violence. Uh, and so it seems to me that the, this this pitch that all of you are describing, sort of trying to shore up, especially some of these college-educated suburban voters, I see two issues with it. Uh, one is that it involves saying two dissonant things. One is all this stuff about, you know, look, I'm not that bad. Stop thinking we're racist. And then it's also, you know, the Democrats are going to let all these people come into low-income housing in your suburbs, are going to destroy the suburbs. Uh, all of this marauding crime and violence that you're seeing on television in cities, it's going to come into your suburbs, which is obviously a racially freighted message. Um, and one where polling shows that uh, the public has become less sympathetic to the sort of positions Donald Trump holds during the during the course of his presidency. And the other is COVID. Voters care about uh, the way that the government has mishandled COVID. Donald Trump's popularity under it is on it is underwater. And I, I'm just I, I don't get the idea that you'll be be able to act like the problem is in the past and voters will go along with it. So, Michael, am I am I wrong to see those as like two really big flaws with the Republican strategy here? You're certainly right that there are contradictions on your first point. I agree with you that the the issue very much matters to um, voters now, and Donald Trump's handling of it and the approval rating of his handling of it is well below water, although it it has ticked up in recent weeks. What I would worry about if I were the Democrats is that um, people may change from a retrospective to a prospective uh, position on COVID. That is, they may see that in the past two weeks, the number of cases is declining nationwide, the number of deaths is declining. They may get into a mood similar to Trump's of saying, okay, it's time to begin moving on from this somehow, moving ahead and opening up, whereas the Democratic message may look like we need to close down again, we haven't handled this, we need, um, you know, more... Uh, more time in uh, restricted uh, levels of business, restrictions on your church, restrictions on your school that people find, you know, almost intolerable to imagine. So I, I, I would worry if I were Democrats, not that people are going to suddenly uh, approve of how Donald Trump handled this since March, but that they'll prefer his general tone and mood going forward to theirs. For my my sort of perspective on how COVID relates to the election is that at the end of the day, it's all about like actual things happening to people. That COVID, it's not a messaging problem. It's not sort of a perception problem. It's that right right now, millions of American families can't send their kids to school or have to deal with virtual school. It is that there are rolling outbreaks. Right, one of the reasons to think that it won't recede from public view or public the public's mind is that depending on where you are in the country, the outbreak is, is either still ongoing or even if it gets tamped down, there will be there will be and like uh, continued spikes in the outbreak, forcing sort of local authorities and states to kind of go through the process again. And then there's the COVID economic crisis, um, meaning, you know, the, the, the people losing jobs, uh, people losing homes. Um, sort of the the pending eviction crisis. I mean, these things are just going to be happening. And so 
Trump may try to project, you know, we should put this in the past. And there will be, um, you know, voters who are like, yes, let's put this in the past. But I, I also think that as these material things unfold for people, it's going to be hard to keep that out of out of public view. And it's going to be difficult for, I think, the Trump campaign to make the case that, no, you should not hold that against the president, especially if it's October and, you know, this has been going on for uh, uh, five, six or seven months, right? You can't, <laughs> if all of this were taking place in September, that might be different. But after the better part of a year of this with the president kind of openly indifferent to what's happening, I just don't think that's something you can overcome with, with messaging. Tim, the remarkable thing to me about the the message that that I I feel like we're seeing from the Trump campaign, leaning into certain culture war issues about statues and that sort of thing, and then also uh, focusing on this message about uh, unrest in cities and violence and crime, is that it, it feels like a replay of a lot of messaging that we saw in 2017 and 2018 in Republican campaigns uh, that really did not work well. And that was in a context when there was less pressing news. Now you're layering on top of that a significant crisis uh, under the president's management. It's it's not to, to what Jamel said. It's not clear to me that the president is paying a big price yet uh, for the economic situation. I don't think we're seeing that in the polling yet. We don't even see a lot of people saying the economy is the most important issue facing the country. Um, but I do think there's risk, as he notes, that that will get worse into the fall. But I think that, you know, really the the thing is COVID. Uh, and it feels weird to me for them to n- not really have a compelling message on COVID. Yeah, look, I, I agree. And just as important politically as Trump's failures as the head of government in confronting COVID has been his failures as head of state, right? This is someone who has just a a, a manifest lack of empathy. Again, politically speaking, just as a pure matter of of sort of uh, electoral perception, I think it's just as damaging and maybe more damaging to him than how the government has actually responded to the coronavirus. I cannot tell you the number of voters I've spoken with in the last couple of months, people who are not super ideologically charged one way or the other, who have expressed real irritation with Trump over not wearing a mask and and real frustration that he doesn't seem to care. Jamel used the phrase indifference a minute ago. I think that's exactly what it is. People pick up on the indifference and even setting any policy dimension of this aside. I think it's that indifference that poses a huge political threat to him. Before we get a break, do any of you want to uh, make the case that this race is in a significantly different place than it was two weeks ago? I feel like we go through this cycle where before the conventions, everyone says conventions don't matter. And then during convention week, they're treated as like the biggest political news story of the year. Has either of these conventions reset this campaign in a meaningful way? I don't think it has. I don't think that this race has changed much more. It was two weeks ago. I think the, you know, the the overwhelming um, quality of this race is its stability that across state polls and across national polls, Biden has held uh, the the same kind of lead within the same kind of range. Trump has been behind with the same kind of range. Biden's you know favorability has basically stayed steady. Trump's disapproval has basically stayed steady. And my way of looking at this is what would it take to get people who disapprove of Trump to move over if not into the approval column, then into the I will vote for Trump column. And on the other side, what would it take for Biden to consolidate the remaining disapprovers? Um, and I don't think anything over the past two weeks has really done either for either candidate. 
Let's let's take a break. I will be back with Jamel Bowie of The New York Times, Michael Brendan Doherty of National Review, and Tim Alberta from Politico Magazine to talk more about the conventions. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right, and Center, and we want to hear from you, too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW and download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right, and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight, one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after, in 1980. But sometimes, legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, Hanif Abduraki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center, I'm Josh Barrow of New York Magazine. On the right is Michael Brennan Doherty, senior writer at National Review. On the left is Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. And Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent for Politico, is also with us. Uh, So, Jamel and Michael, uh, both of you wrote columns this week uh, that addressed the sort of own-the-lib style of President uh, Trump's governance and campaigning, but with opposite descriptions of what's driving it. Jamel, you wrote that there's been a trade, that basically Republican Party constituencies get the advancement of their non-populist policy agenda in exchange for acceding to whatever Donald Trump does personally. You wrote, quote, Republican indifference to the president's corruption, criminality, and prejudice has been rewarded with deregulation, cuts to the social safety net, and the installation of in the federal judiciary of a large new cohort of reliably conservative judges. Uh, Michael, you wrote that Trump's triggering of liberals is is essentially a substitute for policymaking because conservatives face the disadvantage of liberal control of non-elected institutions like the bureaucracy, universities, media, and increasingly, at least on social issues, a lot of uh, management at major corporations. And so you see his his presence standing up, uh, you know, as as against that dominance is sort of the best thing that conservatives can hope for. And you list a number of areas where you see Republicans not having get gotten what they purported to want in terms of actual policy or cultural outputs. And so at first I read these columns and I thought they couldn't simultaneously be true, but on, on reflection, I think they might be that there are certain areas where Republicans have had significant wins and other areas where they've had losses. And so I, I guess I want to start, are the two of you in disagreement about what's been happening politically over the last few years? Why don't we start with Jamel? I think there is truth to Michael's argument. You think about, uh, either you think, you think about during the 2016 campaign, um, Trump spoke a lot about, you know, providing health care and providing, you know, benefits um, for supporters. And none of that's really happened. Um, all that's happened has been, you know, again, look at how I anger the people who dislike me. So Donald Trump promised the moon in 2016. And when you say I'm going to rewrite great deals that are going to bring manufacturing back over the Pacific. And then the result is, okay, we got a slight reduction on tariffs on lobster coming from Maine to Europe, or, you know, Donald Trump ending his negotiations with the Chinese by basically begging them to buy soybeans in swing states. I mean, that's that's a huge come down from where his promises were. And, you know, if you look the Republican tax cut was, I think, the first tax cut that Republicans have passed that was unpopular, that was that was below water on popularity. And so I, I often think that 
in many ways what um, Republicans just benefit from being the other side of a culture war that's not going particularly well for conservatives. Tim, you also wrote about a related matter this week where you spoke with a number of Republican operatives, including Frank Luntz, who's a pretty noted uh, pollster and, you know, focus group operator for Republicans. And none of them could really give you an answer about what the Republican Party exists for right now. Yeah. And, I, you know, look, I think to Michael's point a minute ago, uh, for your average Republican voter who uh, pulled the lever for Trump because they were animated by some of his – you know, populist uh, appeal and 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 nationalist rhetoric, and in some cases, you know, racist and xenophobic rhetoric, um, and they are, you know, scattered across flyover country, living in communities that have been hollowed out, and um, you know, they worry about their kids' future, and and their economic situations are are uh, you know unstable or or, or downright bad. Um, for a lot of those voters, they don't have really anything to show for three and a half years of the Trump presidency, right? I mean, the, the, the tax reform bill of 2018 was overwhelmingly geared toward the, the, the wealthy uh, and, and big corporations. Uh, it did not provide substantial relief to middle class and working class families. Um, the, the promised border wall with Mexico, which was going to keep out all these low wage workers, uh, has not materialized no matter how many times the president insists that it has. Um, Ultimately, what a lot of these voters are left with is that sort of lowest common denominator culture war where they feel like the president, whether it's uh, you know, railing against toppling of old statues or whether it's taking on NASCAR for its decision to ban the Confederate flag or 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 or, you know, uh, advocating a boycott of Goodyear tires uh, last week. I mean, any number of these different things, you know, as I wrote in my piece, like it seems like anything that can sort of you know, go the left on social media into a culture war fight or anything that can light up a Chiron on Fox News and and really agitate the base. Like that is the currency of today's Republican Party. I mean, even 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 something more substantive like the like the the trade war with Mexico, you know, like I, I live in Michigan and I can't I can't overstate just what a flop that entire process was with Trump voters here, uh, people who work in manufacturing, people who work in agriculture. It, it just it didn't work. It didn't. They, they see no tangible net benefit from from the president's uh, fight with China. And in fact, in many cases, they came out the other side worse off than they went into it. And so they still support him, but they support him in spite of some of these uh, policy issues, not because of the policy issues. But how, how can we say, though, that people are coming away from this with nothing to show for it when they are expressing fairly high levels of satisfaction with this presidency? I don't mean the public as a whole. I mean Republicans. Now, obviously, there's there's an issue where if you drive a bunch of people out of the party and they stop calling themselves Republicans, then your poll numbers sort of automatically go up with the people who are still willing to associate themselves with you. But even broadly, satisfaction was with the economy was at, at the highest levels in 20 years uh, until we came into this coronavirus crisis. So even though I'm, you know, I think as, as an objective matter, it's correct to say that the president's trade deals had very little substance 
to them uh, that it was, you know, that the the USMCA that he vaunts so much is a very lightly changed NAFTA. We have not significantly changed the course of American manufacturing or manufacturing employment. Uh, But it looks like, you know, at least his voters did feel like they were getting something out of this. And so I guess you can you can point at them and say, why do you feel that way? But it sort of feels like we have to accept politics as a as a fact on the ground, right? And and a lot of what people are looking for from politics is cultural output, which makes it a little difficult to do the sort of traditional analysis where you look at what the government actually does and evaluate uh, uh, political leaders on it. But it sort of created this dynamic where it allows everybody to feel like they're losing at once, where everyone can point to all of these things that are not going as they wish in some aspect of the society or culture or or the government itself and ascribe that to political leaders and and report dissatisfaction. That's how you get this very strange situation where I think what, what Jamel describes and what Michael describes is both right, which is to say that you have both the right and the left feeling under siege in this country and feeling like they are not getting the things that they were looking for. Tim, what do those operatives that you talk with say about the post-Trump future of the party? I mean, if, if the deliverable for a lot of Republican voters is the Trump show, whatever that is, and we saw a lot of that on display this week, what is that? What, what do they think is going to happen once he either is termed out or is defeated for re-election? What is, the, what is there to provide those voters if, I mean, obviously he won't go away, um, but uh, if you need new people at the head of the party, and I think nobody can quite match the, uh, the nature of personality that Donald Trump has, what what does that mean Republicans can offer in the future? Well, you know, it, it's certainly true that there is no Trumpism without Trump. Um, but it's also true that Trump exposed something in 2016. Um, I think he exposed the sort of complacency of the old guard of the Republican Party that didn't fully understand the the, the, the fury and the resentment and the grievance that existed in the Republican base. And uh, to the extent that Trump exposed that and exploited it, really, uh, in route to winning the nomination and winning the presidency in 2016, I think that he did create something of a durable blueprint that other Republicans uh, in the in the short and medium term, at least, will try to channel th- those same forces and, and make sure that they are not just catering to the Heritage Foundation and not just catering to the Wall Street Journal editorial board, but that they are tailoring their rhetoric, if not their policies, toward uh, this this sort of populist base of. You wouldn't even call them conservatives necessarily, um, but this populist base of Trump supporters who finally felt for the first time in 2016 like a politician was paying attention to them and and, and finally somebody was was hearing them and and was willing to fight for them, even if, as we were all saying a minute ago, there was no sort of tangible policy benefit to those fights. Um, And I think... You know, on the other side of the coin, obviously, you have a a, a recognition that demographics are destiny in this country. And we saw that after the 2012 presidential election when Mitt Romney lost and he lost primarily because he won just 17 percent of the non-white vote, 27 percent of Hispanics. And there was this you know, p- this period of, of real panic and, and soul searching inside the Republican Party and, you know, this autopsy that was produced that called for the party to expand its appeal and broaden its base and reach out to non-traditional voters. And on a specific policy front, a call to pass comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship. And and this wasn't just coming from the, you know, the, the, the elected officials inside the Republican Party, if you think back to the days following Romney's loss in 2012, the loudest voice 
calling for a path to citizenship was Sean Hannity, of all people, right? So I say all of this just to argue that, you know, um, political parties are not static. And because we're in a two-party system and, and coalitions are constantly shifting, you know, one or two losses can dramatically redraw the boundaries around a party. And, and there are going to be sort of urgent imperatives for the Republicans to address after Trump leaves office. And if he loses this November, and particularly if he loses badly, I do think that you're going to see a lot of people attempting to turn the page very quickly on this chapter of Republican history. I just don't think it's going to be terribly easy to turn the page on this chapter because it has been so ugly and it has been so divisive and it has been in many ways so destructive to American institutions and norms. And I don't think there's necessarily any putting that genie back in the bottle. Tim Alberta is chief political correspondent at Politico, and Tim's book all about the Republican Party is called American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump. Tim, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. I've been talking with Jamel Bowie of The New York Times and Michael Brendan Doherty of National Review. We will be back to talk about Kenosha. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, Josh Barrow. On the right is Michael Brennan Doherty, senior writer at National Review, and on the left, Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. On Sunday, Jacob Blake was shot seven times by a Kenosha, Wisconsin police officer as police were responding to a domestic incident. Blake was not armed, though officers said he had a knife inside the car, whose door he opened after struggling with officers who sought to arrest him. Also inside his car were his three sons. Blake is in the hospital. His family has said the shooting will likely leave him paralyzed from the waist down. As with other high-profile police shootings of black men, this one has drawn extensive protests about police and policing in Kenosha. And as has sometimes been the case around the country, some of those protests gave way to rioting and looting at night, though as this week has gone on, things have become more orderly again in Kenosha. There's also been a national response, including player walkouts that led to cancellations of professional sports games in leagues including the NBA and Major League Baseball. The protests and riots in Kenosha also drew counter-protesters and essentially militia members who described their mission as protecting property and businesses in the city from destruction, One of those civilians, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse from Illinois, shot and killed two men and has been charged with murder. Uh, So I I want to avoid litigating the specific circumstances of these specific shootings too much, not because they aren't important. They are, and hopefully we'll learn more through the investigations, though unfortunately Kenosha police do not wear body cameras, which may mean we will learn less about Blake's shooting than we probably ought to. Uh, But I think sometimes there's this fallacy that national questions about crime and policing turn on what we learn about a specific incident when the key dispute is really about broad patterns and practices around the country. And so I want to talk about that, that this has been been an important issue for both parties in this campaign, with uh, increasing uh, public support 
support, according to polls for the Black Lives Matter movement and Democrats increasingly leaning into police reform uh, and, and even in some cases, much more aggressive ideas about what to, how the police should be changed. And on the Republican side, you've seen Donald Trump lean very hard into his support from police and basically saying that, you know, they're here to protect us and they should they, they should be free to, to do what they see as necessary in order to do that. And, and so, Michael, as the president has strongly aligned himself with police, I think we, we've seen in surveys the public views have been moving against him on this issue. And, and yet in this past week, I feel like the way people have been talking about this is, you know, oh, the, you know, the Democrats are going to be blamed for all this unrest in Kenosha, and that's the key political upshot here. Why would this be any different than what we saw with the protests in, in May and June that had pretty broad public support? I don't know if it would be any different. I mean, I, I, you know, early in our conversation, Jamel talked about the stability of the poll numbers. And, you know, it's striking that the difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump was basically the same even before the COVID crisis, um, when Donald Trump had a great economy to tout as as part of his record. So I'm I'm not sure how how much it will change. I think the news, you know, industry does have a bias towards news, and so the stability in the race is like an irritant to us, and we're always looking for signs that some event has come to to interrupt the dynamic. Um, I myself seem to feel right as I'm, you know, as you navigate in the world, I feel that same uh, sense. I think that's informing these these ideas that uh, there's been some shift in mood in the public. You know, it, it. I know it sounds very vaporous, and there's no data behind it, but I think a lot of us feel like we pick things up through social media, as as anecdotal as that is, that maybe this will hurt Democrats. Remember, this is also like a primordial fear for Democrats, especially older Democrats who remember how um, Richard Nixon triumphed on a law and order message. They think of Trump as a kind of Nixonian figure in the Republican Party. Um, it's you know part of why Democrats nominated two Southern Baptists on the ticket in 1992 to kind of overcome Republican dominance on you know cultural issues like crime. Um, it's why Joe Biden passed the crime bill enthusiastically in 1994. So I think there is just this inbuilt fear among Democrats that this can hurt them. Um, I'm I'm not totally convinced it it can, but I do think there is a straightforward story that the Trump campaign would like to tell, which is that in some cases, you know, the mayor of Seattle seemed to bless the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone as a summer of love and then had to shut it down after two children were murdered in it. And, you know, sometimes offers of federal backup in uh, law enforcement have been turned down, um, you know, or at least criticized as fascistic attempts and I think Trump would like to say that, you know, it's the Democrats who are are allowing this chaos and death to happen under their watch. Uh, and I'm the one who is opposing it. Yeah. 
Jamel, I feel like there's a lot of the conversation about this has dealt with, you know, people saying, well, will Joe Biden be brought down by defund the police and other slogans like that? And will he be able to disassociate himself from them? And then Biden very clearly says, you know, I don't want to defund the police. It's the president who wants to defund the police because he's starving state and local governments of the revenue they use to pay the police. And so I guess I, I have two questions about that. One is, is is Joe Biden insulating himself politically from whatever risks that may exist here uh, based on that, that history for the Democratic Party? And then the second question is, is Joe Biden being bold enough on the substance? Is it, you know, it is does should he be taking a more aggressive stance about the police based on where his uh, where his uh, constituency is and where public opinion has moved over the last few years? I think that Biden has done a decent job insulating himself, not even really because of rhetoric, although I think it it is important that whenever rioting is flared up, Biden has condemned it. Mainstream Democratic leaders have. There's an interesting thing, I think, happening in terms of perceptions with regards to all of this, where if you look at what actual Democratic politicians are saying, kind of across the board, it's a pretty unified message. Protests are good. Rioting is bad. And then, of course, you have activists on the ground who are much more permissive when it comes to rioting. And it it seems, and in the public opinion uh, uh, data seems to support this, that voters are making a distinction between what Democratic politicians are saying and what activists on the ground are saying to the extent they're paying, to the extent they're paying attention to the latter. Um, the other thing that Biden has done, and this isn't really something he's done actively, is that it is actually kind of difficult to pin this person is an anti-police radical who encourages uh, a disorder on a 78-year-old a white man who was understood by the public as being a moderate Democrat, right? We just had this primary season where the principal attack on Biden was that he was a moderate who did not go far enough, Um, that he had a direct contrast in the form of Bernie Sanders, who, you know, made it quite clear that he thought Biden was a moderate who did not go far enough. Um, And so this has been kind of inculcated into the public, both by way of Biden's just presence on the public stage over the past decade, he's chosen as Barack Obama's vice president in part because he signals to the public this is a moderate person. And then the Democratic presidential race um, has made it quite clear that, yeah, Biden is relative to many uh, of his competitors, uh, a moderate uh, Democrat, sort of near the center, if not like a little right of center relative to those other Democrats. And so when you have this charge that Biden is secretly a radical or that he's enthralled to, um, you know, the the far left of the Democratic Party, I don't, I just don't think that it lands. It's, it, or let me put this differently. The work you have to do to make that land with persuadable voters is just like too much work. Like it's not something, it requires too much explanation. And so as long as Biden continues to condemn rioting, rioting and violence when it happens, um, I think he's he's fine. I, I I just I have a hard time imagining the voter prepared to vote for Biden and is then persuaded that Biden in fact is you know encouraging the violence. The other part of this is that, and I've said this on Twitter. I, I've written I've written like two columns about this more or less, which is that the analogy to 1968 that I think a lot of Democrats um uh, are making falls apart simply when you recognize that Nixon wasn't the incumbent, that 
Nick Sims running against essentially an incumbent an incumbent Democrat, and it the picture looks really different when disorder is happening on your watch. Um, it is a, it is in the same way that it is hard to tar a lifelong moderate politician as being a secret radical. Um, something it's it, it's it's sort of in direct contradiction with claims, right? That like why didn't he do anything in Washington? Um, it's also difficult for an incumbent president to say, if you don't reelect me, the disorder that is happening under my watch will continue. Like just me trying to articulate it, it doesn't make any sense when I try to say it out loud. Michael, does does that make sense to you? I mean, I think I feel like what I hear from pro-Trump conservatives about that is is something similar to what was in your column this week, that basically like Trump is the only thing that is any sort of check on this chaos and it'll get even worse if we don't have our one check standing on it. Now, I don't buy that analysis, but is that is that analysis that scans to people, do you think? I'm not sure how it plays. I, and Joe Biden hammered that line yesterday um, or two days ago saying that, you know, how safe do you feel in Donald Trump's America? Um, I think that would work more if, if people thought that the the protest movement and the, the riots that kind of happened after sunset uh, at the end of the protests were aligned with Donald Trump politically in some way. Um, and I do get a, uh, and this is hard to talk about, but I do get an overwhelming sense from some conservative friends uh, that they view the dynamic right now as almost extortionate, that they understand full well that if Donald Trump wins um, the election in November, especially if he wins um an electoral college victory and a popular and there's a popular vote that is stacked up more for Joe Biden, which would be the likely scenario in a Trump win. I mean, I think all conservatives understand intuitively that there will be much more violence in the streets immediately uh, in reaction to an event like that. What what is the reason to think that uh, that that would materialize compared to you know with his first election or what has happened in the subsequent nearly four years? There is an overwhelming sense, I think, among the liberal intelligentsia that um, the constitutional structures that are anti-majoritarian are producing a government that looks illegitimate to them. Uh, And I think another situation where there is a popular vote and electoral vote um, divergence will be felt as a provocation on exactly this point. Um, And, you know, there's just open talk of, you know, the Atlantic runs pieces saying, like, what if Donald Trump is brought down in a color revolution uh, that is driven by people power? I think conservatives intuitively sense that there will be unrest and they feel like it is a threat. And um, I'm just telling you that that resentment exists out there. I'm not saying it's legitimate. I'm not saying um, that it reflects anything other than what is out there. Jamel, I I think there are sort of two separate claims there from Michael. One is about these policing protests. 
um, and the the manner in which they might in- intensify. And the other is about some of this the stuff about that what I what I do think is an increasing focus on the idea uh, that uh, that Republican election wins that are anti-majoritarian in nature that are not only uh, achieved without a plurality of the vote, but achieved through a strategy that doesn't even attempt to obtain a plurality of the, of the vote. And if you look at the 538 model uh, for for this election, you know it's the there's a significant chance that Donald Trump will win re-election. In almost all of those cases, they'll still get fewer votes than Biden. They'll just be distributed in a way that gives him an advantage in the electoral college. And so I guess, especially with that second one, is it is it reasonable to worry that that would lead to unrest? Because I think that that's something you don't just hear from conservatives like Michael. I think you hear from, from liberals about how that means that the government would lack democratic legitimacy, which means you can do all sorts of things you wouldn't do in a normal circumstance. No, I, I think that uh, I, I'm... I'm 100% convinced that another electoral college popular vote split, um, which would be, what, the third in 20 years, two consecutive. I mean, it it would be kind of an unprecedented thing in American history um, for this to happen would result in substantial popular unrest. I don't think there's any way around that. I think that part of the explanation for that is not simply a kind of intuition um, that you know, democratic legitimacy follows some sort of popular affirmation, but that the Trump administration has been run in such a way as to essentially treat non-Trump voting states as sort of treat them not as important in the order of things or not governing on their behalf uh, uh, compared to Trump voting states. That kind of a, a a style of governance that isn't just that does that doesn't just refuse to acknowledge the fact um, that the president won without winning the most voters which I, I sort of there's no way to prove this but I, I do think that these things would be less uh, would be less fraught if under those circumstances, the administration governed in sort of a coalition, you know, by, you know, I sound like a, like, you know, David Broder. <laughs> For young listeners who don't even know who David Broder is, he's sort of the, 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 the famous centrist pundit of, of much of the late 20th century. Right. But I mean, it, it would matter, right? If, if you, if a, if a president wins office without having the public on his side, um, Winning uh, without winning the most votes, that for that president to govern in such a way as to recognize that they do actually have to persuade some number of voters of their legitimacy. Even George W. Bush in that first year governed in this manner, right? Like approaching things in this kind of I need to show the broader public that I in fact need I need to earn their legitimacy. And so the extent to which Trump has just not done that at all, right? Has not taken any effort over the past three and a half years to win over um, the public, the, the chunk of the public, the, the majority of the public that disappro- doesn't just disapprove of him, but like sees him as transgressive in some way, I think would contribute to real unrest if he were to win um, another you know minority victory because there would be a broad and I think correct sense that this second Trump administration would have no interest in attempting to govern in a way as to say, I am here for all Americans, not just for my, you know, faction of Americans. (laughs) 
We've reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Michael Brendan Doherty, what's your rant? I am down in uh, southern New Jersey at the beach this past week. Uh, It's a vacation I do with my family uh, just about every year, uh, and we have extended family here. I would just like to say that I have a, a pet peeve against all products meant to shoo bugs away from humans. Uh, Citronella candles, uh, anti-bug, sunscreen, all of this stuff is a horrible lie. And my uh, legs, which have been on fire for days from black flies biting me on the beach, attest to this fact. This entire line of products has to be banned by the government as a fraud on humanity. Jamel Bowie, what's on your mind? Um, I, I guess my rant is going to con- deal with politics as well. So there was a news story today about <laughs> Kanye West, uh, I guess, attempt to get on the ballot in various other states and about the people who might be funding this Kanye West effort. And there seems to be an assumption by the people who, who are funding Kanye West's efforts to run a presidential campaign that this might siphon enough votes um, away from Democrats to help Donald Trump win re-election. And I just, you know, I, I have no, I do not want Donald Trump to be re-elected, but I feel uh, obligated to tell the people who are doing, who are trying to get Kanye West on the ballot, that this is the worst possible thing they could do for trying to get Donald Trump elected. Because the people Kanye West will attract are not going to be people who vote for Biden. Um, if you sort of do any reading about the nature of, of voting within the African-American community, kind of the thing that comes up again and again is that black voting is highly community-based and it's very much based on sort of community norms, on social pressure, these kinds of things. Um, that Those norms and that pressure are going to all push in the direction of a Biden vote. The African-Americans who tend not to vote for Democrats tend to be the ones with less of a connection to those community norms. That typically means the black church. They're going to be younger. They're going to be more likely to be male. They're going to feel a little more alienated. Those are the people who voted for Trump in the 2016 election. And they're most likely the black voters, if any, who would vote for Kanye West. And so what this effort is doing, and this goes, I think, across racial categories, that the voters, the people most likely to vote for someone like Kanye West are those alienated from the political process, which is to say people who might be more likely to vote for Trump if they were going to vote, and that their option was Trump or Biden. So what this too-clever-by-half strategy is, is giving an exit ramp for anti-Biden, Trump-skeptical voters wherever Kanye is on the ballot. So, like, it's a dumb idea. <laughs> like, if you're, if you're interested in winning, don't do it. Yeah. For my rant, an ongoing pet peeve of mine that I think we saw even more of this week than we usually do is people making totally unsupported claims about how the public feels about news events, either based on their own opinions or the opinions of people in their social circle or, especially in the case of liberals, their fears about how people in the public might feel about things. There's a lot of public opinion research that gets conducted on an ongoing basis. And if you if something unexpected happens and you don't know how people might feel about it, you can wait a few days and you might learn about that. You can also 
also look at historical polling from the last few months and look at what issues people say are important, how they reacted to similar news events that happened in the past. I think, you know, there was a lot of surprise about the public opinion reaction to the unrest that we saw after uh, after the events in Minneapolis with George Floyd in, in May and June, which seemed not to have, uh, have benefited the president at all politically, in fact, uh, appear to have maybe hurt him a little bit. Uh, and so I think that, you know, when, when you're wondering how Kenosha matters or how the Republican convention or how the Democratic convention matters, you might as well sit and wait. And the answer that you get a lot this year is that nothing matters, uh, that public opinion is extremely stable about these candidates. Some issues opinion does move around with news events, but uh, but not with the, the approval numbers and the horse race numbers and the election outcome, which is kind of a boring answer uh, from a news perspective. But uh, very often that's the truth. And so I try to start with the prior that anything that happens probably is not going to change hardly anybody's mind about anything. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Jamel Bowie, Michael Brendan Doherty, and Tim Alberta. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director today is Kat Yor. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW.